Yep. Okay. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. And I'm Haldane. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. So uh, we already did a short review of your book, uh, our spoiler-free review, which our was... Our first spoiler-free review. Which was painful, let me tell you. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta talk about this thing, and I'm like, I can't, it's a spoiler. Um, but your book is actually f- uh, several novellas, four novellas. Yes, all rolled into one. Yes. Um, which yes. I really loved your format, because it really felt like... I know biology is your focus, so it really felt like, here's my generation one, and then here's my, like... The next iteration and then the next iteration. Um, so hopefully you guys already listened to the spoiler-free podcast because we're going to talk to Haldane and maybe not rehash uh, events in the novel. Okay, so I was poking around on your blog earlier, and I noticed that you do something called uh, experimental zero-input farming. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, yes, yeah, um, just as a... It all ties into the theme of the fiction as well. So I'm a doomer when it comes to industrial civilization. I think that's got a expiry date sometime in the future. Um, I'm not specific about when that's going to come. But I'm also very positive and excited about other possibilities for humanity. And one of the tools in our repertoire is biology. So um, rediscovering ways of doing farming that don't rely on industrial inputs is one of the big focuses of my real life as well. Okay, so I saw that you worked as a research biologist, Um, but you Mm -hmm. retired early. So um, did you always intend to retire early or was that something that just sort of the opportunity arose and you're like, well, I'm absolutely going to quit working and do what I want? I've always been, see, here's the thing. I got into academia thinking I wasn't particularly interested in money. Like I never wanted to be rich. And being a PhD student and a postdoc, you get very good at living on very, very little money. That's probably the one really valuable thing I learned from all of those years in in, um, formal education is is how to be poor. Um, But it was the, the lack of freedom and creativity uh, in formal academia that really drove me out in the end and the lack of stability that you're it, it's a very bureaucratic system these days and just asking questions is not as welcome as you'd imagine it in a group of people who is who are meant to ostensibly be investigating the nature of reality there, there's a lot of things that they're just like oh you can't What's the point in asking that? You're just so focused on right, the that. Right, that question would not look good on a grant and proposal. <laughs> so be quiet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm working on my own, I don't have, like, multi-million dollar machines to, like, churn out data, but I can do pretty much anything that I want. Well, there's a lot of value in that, too. So um, I was also poking around, mm. and I saw that you said um, 
the line I thought was really interesting was, we're tired of post-apocalyptic, which, correct, we are tired of post-apocalyptic. And Star Trek future is maybe out of reach, but you felt like we needed a realistic and inspiring future. So how would you describe your novels mm. as realistic and inspiring? So other than a more speculative um overarching uh, story around cosmic natural selection, which is a real theory by a real prominent physicist. Um, everything in it is pure, hard biology. So it, everything is completely plausible and there's no, you know, hand-waving magic. And I was thinking about this the other day. Um, even if you look at, like, fantasy of dragons and, like, orcs, if you cut out the, the magic, fantasy, classic fantasy, is more scientifically plausible than Star Trek, where you've got faster-than-light right. drives so that you can get across the vast expanses of the, um, of the universe and go somewhere interesting. So it, I find it really ironic that sci-fi has these kind of, I don't know, hand-waving, get-out-of-jail-free mechanisms to construct the stories because the universe is very big and very empty and very hostile. And, and our real science tells us this, but our science fiction just puts its fingers in its ears and says, la, 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 no, we want to go and find a new planet every five minutes. To poke around <laughs> it's in. very true. Um, I, and that leads me to my next question, thankfully, which is um, like the role of actual science in science fiction and the term hard science fiction and how, like, how do we create a science fiction where it can be both scientific but achievable? Palatable. So, palatable. Digestible yeah. by the masses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's tricky <laughs> because, I mean, even if you look... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, 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 even if you look at the, the hot, hard, soft spectrum in, like, popular science fiction... The harder science fiction or things that label themselves as hard science fiction tend to be less popular. Um, I, I would say, I mean, compare like Star Wars, which is basically science fantasy versus I'm trying to think of something. I'm trying to think of anything that's really popular, even moderately popular that you would call hard science fiction. Yeah, I can't think of anything. I mean, some people might argue um, The Expanse would be like a common name that people might recognize. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of ironic, isn't it? <laughs> and that's that's like my specialty. That's what I read <laughs> when when I'm picking the books to read, I pick these hard sci-fi books. Yeah, it's interesting cuz I feel like that's the It's fu it's funny when you Go ahead, Helding. Oh no, you go, sorry. Oh, I was going to say I feel like it's really interesting. Oh, no, I was oh. going to just point out <laughs> I think it's the slight internet delay. <laughs> delay. You go. <laughs> Slight delay. <laughs> I, I was just going to point out that in fantasy, the opposite is true. Like harder fantasy where the magic systems have rules seem to be more popular than the ones where, you know, it's just whatever feel, whatever the wizard feels like at the time, uh, whether his spell will yeah, work. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah, it's, I was going to say, I feel like it's interesting because one of the sort of niches that I feel like we're slowly edging towards with the podcast is we do a lot more sci-fi. At first we were doing kind of a range of genres, but it feels like, yeah, the harder sci-fi, the more kind of thought-provoking sci-fi doesn't have um, people talking about it. And so I feel like that directing people to us because we're happy to talk about it. And I wonder if it's a challenge of balancing reader comprehension with content. 
where you have to be able to give enough exposition to keep them up to date with you, but without losing them. Yeah. Yeah, like Yeah, I, yeah, that that that's definitely a challenge I had writing Vitreous Wound. Yeah. Yeah, cuz I can definitely see I feel like you did a really good job of balancing that of I'm not I mean I know some biology, but I'm definitely not a biologist, and yet I felt like okay, this is achievable. I get where you're going. Um so like I really mm. appreciated that with your writing. Um, and I just feel like that was such a huge challenge. Was that something that you felt like you struggled with when you were writing the novel? Zuh. When I first started, I was uh, I was much more explicit in my exposition of the ideas. I, I used some really I, I, I experiment with a lot of different approaches, and um, yeah, some of the early attempts were quite <laughs> clunky. So it took me a while to to figure out the balance. And I'm sure what's there doesn't work for some readers. It's, I was very aware that it was a select audience that would enjoy the story. Yeah, the I mean, I feel like that's the nature of a lot of books. But I definitely felt like it was something where if you wanted to read it and you just wanted to enjoy the characters, you could. And if you wanted to delve deeper into the biology, that was there too. So congratulations. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really well done. <laughs> Lots of sex and death. <laughs> sex, non-sex and death. Anti-erotic. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of anti-erotic and, and pro-death in a weird way, which was, that that was strange. I'm surprised, I, well, I'm relieved that more people still found the story interesting, even though, like, the standard thing in a story is the highest stakes is, oh no, my character's going to die. Right. And I relate to that and I have to avoid it at any cost. And to flip that on its head and have characters where it's just like, oh, I guess it's time <laughs> right. to die. Today. That's my job in the story. Yeah. <laughs> it's no big deal. Yeah, I thought yeah. it was really. I thought the, that made that moment where OG tells um, Estuvita, like, "Don't die! Like, you guys die for no reason. Like, you stub your toe and you just kill yourself." Yeah, he's chewing you her just out stick about around. being so like, willing to cull. <laughs> yeah, and it was a really interesting moment of self-reflection on the novel itself. Of like, oh, I realize my characters. I'm literally, they're dropping like flies. Like every novella has at least one character die. <laughs> I was like, wow, these are both, these are the most understandable deaths in a book that I've ever read. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, that was fine. That was your time. That right. Like you didn't I, feel traumatized I, this is a when the character also. chose to do that to themselves. Yeah. Because that's, yeah. that was, yeah. you know, their culture. That's what yeah. they do. And then everybody else just moves on so the reader moves on with everybody else yeah the funny thing is oh sorry the funny thing is um i suspect that the the common cultural aversion to death is a relatively recent phenomenon it's a very industrial phenomenon because our experience of death is that it kind of happens elsewhere it's like it's frightening because yeah. it's mysterious uh, whereas if you go back a few generations, like not that many generations, grandma would die in the house and like you'd go and visit her in a room while she was dying and little sisters would, you know, die in infancy and everyone would be around to experience it. And it was a, a and you'd have livestock and animals that were constantly being bored and died too. So death wasn't as big of an issue. Even things like infanticide were relatively common up until a few hundred years ago. It wasn't necessarily something that was formal and ritualized, but people were aware that it happened. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
Actually, my dad just passed, not this August, but the previous August. And we had the opportunity to have him at home. And we all sat with him um, through the whole last week. And we didn't have anyone come in except um, the people that have to come in and kind of make sure we're taking care of them. And it was a very uh, kind of profound, uh, almost very spiritual experience of being able to sit with him through that and then be there all the way to the end and then, you know, be able to sit with him and then, you know, then call and have someone come and get him. But up until then, it was like, here's someone that has cared for me my whole life. Why would I pass that off to somebody else? To and a stranger. It, yeah. And it ended up making it so much easier to process the death um, as opposed to like he went away to the hospital and it happened there. And so it, it was just really interesting. So when now when I see death in books, I'm like, okay, like, I don't know. I feel like I have had a transformative experience around death. So that makes a lot of sense that um, if that was something you had more experience with, it would feel less um, clinical, less traumatizing. So that makes sense. Mm. Um, how did you come up with your titles? Uh, so... <laughs> Each of the characters has a particular characteristic body part. So for my birth in book one, it's her feet that kind of get her into trouble. True. And it, it, it's just an interesting tidbit. The most unusual part of the human body isn't our giant brain. It's just a, it's just a bloated monkey brain, basically. The weirdest part of human beings is our mm -hmm. feet. They're, they're so transformed compared to monkey feet and they completely change how we interact with the landscape. So that's why I wanted to, to make the first title um, her Unbound Hallux because it, it kind of breaks three and gets her into all sorts of trouble. Um, and yeah, each of the titles focuses on the aspect of that person that is like the most prominent. It's kind of their, their theme. So with, um, with Paula Nella, it's her uh, ability to produce milk and venom and tears and all of these like secretions kind of uh, re appear repeatedly in her life. That's interesting. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm. And it just helped tie it all together. So like when you see one of the titles, like, you kind of hopefully recognize yeah, it. Yeah. I think the pupil one I, I was the most obvious because that's the one where she's going blind throughout the whole yeah. process. Yeah. Mm. Um, if you could spend... A day with another author. Who would it be? Oh, that is a really, really interesting question. Do they no. have to be alive? Okay, yeah, get, get the <laughs> um, I So the, the, the author that I read the most of was Patrick White. I don't know if you know about him. He's my, maybe a little bit obscure. So he's an Australian author from, I think he died in the 90s, uh, who won a Nobel Prize for Literature, hence why nobody ah. has heard of him. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, he was, um, uh, uh, I think he was out, gay man, through that era, like when things were more difficult. And he wrote books mostly about um, Australian colonial history. But he just had this way of like psychologically vivisecting his characters, of just putting them through the ringer and just kind of celebrating the nastiness of human beings and our flaws. And I, I read so many of his novels while I was trapped in the lab as a PhD <laughs> student, just passing the time waiting for a machine to do something. 
And um, yeah, I think he is where I, my love of literature came from. He was a gardener too. So um, I, I think I, I would have jumped at an opportunity to go, one of his, go to one of his famous dinner parties and um, probably have him like go off on some nasty <laughs> at some point, which he was prone to do. Interesting. So you like, you really enjoy characters in novels. So yeah. Like. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So do you... Yeah. He, he, he's very good at digging into people's So do you heads. see yourself as a character driven writer? I try to be, I try to be, I'm definitely ideas first, but if you can't get the characters and their relationships popping and fully integrated with the plot, then I, I mean, it's such a strange medium, like just this, you know, thousands of words like piled on top of each other. And the only real advantage that it has left over all of the other competing media is that interiority that you can really get inside someone's head that movies can't do video games. I think they're still too young a medium to have quite functioned. And they're kind of just turning into a, uh, like a slot machine. The, the art form's just devolving into, you know, uh, what is it, a Skinner box where you just press the button oh, yeah. over and over again yeah. for thousands <laughs> of hours. So, <laughs> it, I mean, there are some examples of amazing storytelling in video games, which are encouraging, but the majority of the, you know, billions of man hours of attention oh, yeah. I think that's getting poured into video games. Games are definitely been, branching yeah, into it hasn't been used for anything just exploiting, uh, like, psychological hacks to just keep your attention on it. And then there's these few... Mm. like really big games that are like just like novels, basically interactive novels. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're not, you don't quite have like an internal sense inside mm. the video game characters. It's interesting though, watching novels transform in the modern market to go along the same path as video games. Like it's all about hooking the reader and like hitting all these tropes and like keeping them constantly engaged and they can't put the book down for a second or they'll like stop reading. And I think that takes away from some of the potential of the medium as well too, mm -hmm. that it's all hooks and no, no meat. Yeah. It's like the binge economy. Kind of like that, that scene in, um, like that scene in um, Hellraiser, you know, when it's all the fish hooks <laughs> that like tear the yes. people apart. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like that, but tropes. Uh, but uh, yeah, psychological. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm in, I'm on. Of course, I'm on Instagram for the podcast, and so I follow a lot of Bookstagram accounts. And now I think it's funny people will put a picture of the book up, and then they'll put every single trope that's in there in an attempt to get you to read it. So it's like this one has enemies to lovers mm -hmm. and forced proximity, and you know uh, all these. And they're like, "Ooh, yeah, this is, I'm gonna like it. It's got my six tropes in it," <laughs> which is just. Interest. I'm. I'm thankful that it is driving sort of a proliferation of reading, but at the same time, it's self-selecting for these very trope-heavy novels, and it's just. Uh, it's interesting to watch. I guess. Um, that happens to me a lot. We have that. It. It. It feels. Oh, sorry. It feels like it's setting us up for AI to take <laughs> our jobs, and for the poor writers who are like churning out one of these formulaic novels a month to probably feel grateful that they don't have <laughs> right? to do yeah. it anymore. Yeah. yeah. I, I was thinking I really liked the characters in your stories. And 
as someone who's who reads a lot of hard sci-fi, characters are something that kind of get glossed over sometimes in hard sci-fi novels because the author is so focused on the particular like science concept that they want to explore in the book. And sometimes the characters are pretty flat. But your very, your characters were very compelling and like engaging. Like I wanted to keep going back and figure out, okay, what happens to this character next? Yeah. Did you mention your favorite characters in the, just for my like research and future mental notes, did you have favorite characters? I'm trying to remember if you mentioned in the spoiler. Um, we really loved Wubgub and Boba. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we both got to that part and I was like, oh, I can't wait till you get there so we could talk about this guy. <laughs> Just the the interaction where he has with OG where they're talking about the creation story. And he's like, oh, I get to make up mine now. And he's like, no, you oh. don't get to make it up. <laughs> he's like, well, it sounds made up. Can't I make my own up? And that was probably one of our favorite parts. Yeah, that the last the last half of the last novella was probably my favorite like character interaction uh, you know, story arc. Yeah. Because they were so three very different people who all had something, you know, pulling them all together and they had to they had to get along but they really did get along with each other. Yeah, I think even a lonely penis can make unreasonable demands has been quoted at me at least 6 times <laughs> since we finished reading the book. <laughs> There's so many highlighted well, lines. When I was outlining that <laughs> when when I was outlining book 4, um, the, I was so excited when I realized I could make an unrequited love quadrangle, ah. which included the <laughs> and they're all male. So done. Kudos. Was, it works. It really works. That, that's that's got to be a first. That's got to be a first. Yeah. I, I just, I like the OG character, the fact that he's the thread through all of them. Um, in fact, we didn't read any of the descriptions of the novels. I just started reading them. So I had no idea he was going to be in all of them. Right, so when OG like fell out of the tower in the second novella, we were like, "Oh, Aww, OG I like, died." Man, I liked him, man. <laughs> it's too came... bad we didn't see what happens to him. <laughs> and then and we got to the third book, and it was like, "Oh, okay." Oh, I was like, "OG's back." I was, yeah. I think I actually exclaimed out loud. I was like, "Oh, good, he's back." And Matt goes, "Who?" And I was like, "I can't tell you. You're not there yet." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was that was a clever uh, character because he's yeah. so um, likable as a character, and he gets to be our blank slate. So it's nice because everybody gets to explain stuff to him. Now, interesting fun fact: when I first wrote the book seriously, I got most of the way through it with OG as the point of view character, and it didn't work in all it the didn't novellas. Work at all, partly because he's. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it was one big novel just with OG as like the main character, and the problem was he doesn't really figure out what's happening until like the last quarter of the story, and even then, like he's still he's still a little bit out of the loop, and nobody's going to read that far to like get the basic premise of the story. Um, and he, it's weird. He's he's more likable as a secondary character. As a primary character, he's just so. I don't know. He was kind of modeled on a little gross dog that's kind of cute, but it's always humping things and you just <laughs> don't want to touch it. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like that um, that character type is difficult to make your point of view character because they are 
likable, but they're not necessarily the one that's going to pick up all of the hidden clues that are popping up. And so then you have to make mm. sure they don't, but then the reader doesn't. That's tricky. So I can see that. Mm. Um, I read a lot of books with Kate for the, our other podcast where I feel like we do get 90% through the novel before we find out what's happening. So I can confirm that does happen, but it's not enjoyable and I hate it every time. <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> and they get on me quite frequently. They're like, ah, not everybody is curious and wants to find things out. I'm like, yeah, but the main character should like, that's the point of the main character. Um, I don't know. The it, it, it's, it's funny writing. I've really enjoyed it as a puzzle because you're balancing like 20 different dimensions all at the same time, where if you'd lean too far in one, one extreme or the other, it, it kind of loses the magic or the intrigue. So I've, I've really enjoyed the process and I've only been seriously writing fiction for the last two or three years now. Um, it was a bit of a mental break from the farm work that I was doing. Cause I was, I, I reached the point where I was just burnt out on doing nothing but worrying about the farm. And, um, yeah, decided I needed a, another side. So did you hire life. a professional editor or did you do all your own editing? I hired a proofreader to look over the first novella, um, just to make sure that I wasn't completely delusional. Like it's very easy for things to slip through that you don't see. And they made some minor changes, but they said, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically polished. So I used the changes they made and applied them to the other three books because I'm, I'm a dirt poor dirt farmer. <laughs> like I don't have multiple thousands of dollars to throw at this, what may end up being a vanity project, time will tell. Um, so yeah, I wanted to try and cut corners. I mean, I, I did the yeah, covers I myself thought you did too. Really, those were really good. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of my complaints, well, not my complaint, but I feel like self-publishing would benefit from a better, like a way to make better covers. Uh, does that make sense? Because sometimes I'm like, oh, that's self-published. And in it, I feel like it's a turnoff for some readers because we, we do judge books by their cover. Um, but I thought you did a really good job with those. Mm. It took me a long time to get them right. I tried a lot of different approaches. And eventually I realized I had to think about what my target audience was because biological science fiction kind of doesn't exist like, I mean, look at the covers for Oryx and Crake. They're not great. Like, they rabbit or like, they don't really know what they're trying to get across. So I went back, it's like, okay, who's my biggest reasonable target audience? And I thought people who did like high school biology is probably the biggest demographic of people who have some understanding of biology and science and, and might be able to, you know, get a bit more out of the story. So I tried to tap into the visual language of high school textbooks for biology. You know, the, the simple kind of cutout diagrams that you have of biological yeah. systems. Um, and then I was inspired by like the late 70s, early 80s biology textbooks often have like completely wild out there color schemes that just don't quite match <laughs> the subject, but they're, they're eye-catching. That's fair. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I, I thought they were really well done. I feel like there's definitely a tone for covers. There's like, here's my sci-fi covers. They always look like this. Here's my fantasy covers. They always look like this. And I thought yours were a nice, I, I could pick them up not knowing they were sci-fi, but still know I was getting into uh, like a... Something fantastical. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, the, it's that mixture of intrigue and slightly creepy <laughs> that you yes. have to reflect the tone of the story. Yeah. 
Um, you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking about like for we talked about the difference between fantasy, like sci-fi, sci-fantasy, really, and then more science fiction. And um, somebody like Brandon Sanderson can explain to us a magic system for pages and pages and people will sit through it. And I wonder what your take is on why we we can do that. We can have that exposition about a fantastical science that does not exist. But as soon as someone's like, oh, it's about biology, it's like, oh, never mind. I can't get biology and check out maybe because the power <laughs> doesn't scale as much with biology as it does with you know, electronics and robotics i'm just wondering if it's a perception like a science perception like oh no science is hard i failed biology in high school but i'm 35 now i can't have changed <laughs> and <laughs> i possibly i think some people might have a block like that but i suspect it's more to do with uh wish fulfillment like the reason why a lot of people read fantasy is that they want to imagine wielding these like kind of over the top powers and sci-fi often offers that as well too, like power suits and, you know, laser beams and teleporting, like all of these kind of quasi magical things that give you extra power. And when you do hard sci-fi and you're constantly slapping the reader on the wrist and saying, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's, it's more difficult to make that, interesting to to you know to promise something um i mean that gets me to a related idea um the world that i created in our vitreous womb utopia dystopia how did you interpret that hmm that's an interesting question i didn't see it maybe as either one more as just an outgrowth of like because I, I didn't know it was set 30,000 years into the into the future until I read the description, because I don't think that's actually in the book anywhere. Uh, when Savita's reading through those books, oh, she which when she like found 50, the romance years. novel, that was another one of my favorite parts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, how captivated it, everybody in the town was with it, the romance novel. Yeah, it just yeah. felt futuristic to me. I didn't really see it as... I was thankful it wasn't post-apocalyptic, like we're all dying like flies and we're just roaming around killing each other for resources it was like maybe that's happening somewhere else but we've kind of got it figured out and we're working towards like this better society that we can then take and transplant elsewhere and sort of infect the rest of the world with our version of life which has turned out to be more sustainable than their version of life yeah this felt like this was a a new civilization like after the after you know, the desolation from whatever happened, this whole new civilization started up, you know, in the remains of the old civilization and they're just making things work. Yeah. And so it felt like something that was growing and going on to something rather than something that was uh, collapsing or just, you know, minimally surviving in in the remains. I mean, perhaps that was the benefit of the four novella system. Cause if you look at it from Mio best point of view, it's post-apocalyptic. But if you look at it from the Austral's point of view, it's not because it's their society. It's what they know. Mm. So I think that it, having those four different perspectives helps us transition from, I'm a captive in a little tiny castle. That's actually a prison, but I don't think of it as a prison to, oh, actually, I get to move about the world as I feel, and I'm, I'm allowed to live or die as I choose. So, yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't think I saw it either way. 
just as like, oh, okay, this is set in the future. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I'm pleased with that. I, I tried to set it up as a utopia for the background characters, but for an interesting plot, you need the main character to be going through yeah. difficulties. So for people who don't fit into the society easily, it's more like a dystopia. They, they have yeah. more of a struggle. I think, I think you achieved that because I felt like OG was the one that struggled, but only because he struggled in his understanding of the world. Not because the world forced him to struggle. Mm. Except when he had to, like, kill his babies. He didn't like that. That was really sad. But that was fine. I mean, that, that from his point of view, that was the point of that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So now that you've published novels and you've put them out into the universe, if you could reinvent publishing and distribution, what would it look like? Ah, so I've been doing some very amateuristic amateurish experiments in this vein and I'm, I'm hopeful to talk to Matt more about this because this might be in his vein of expertise so at the moment we rely on mega corporations to use their algorithms to direct us towards the, the books movies songs whatever that we might enjoy the most and as long as we are spending money they don't really have any incentive to give us the best possible outcome um, if anything, it's a little bit of a perverse incentive like the dating sites have where they actually want to keep you single so that you keep using yes. the service. They have no incentive for like picking that one perfect partner out of the millions and saying, here they are, go off and be married and never come <laughs> back again. Um, it's a little bit like junk food that wants to keep you hungry and malnourished so that you keep eating the junk food. So I started looking at this proliferation of large language models and AI and thinking, oh no, you know, everyone's worried that there's going to be this flood of AI-created novels that will make the imbalance in the market even worse. And it got me thinking, could we flip this around and actually run our own AI algorithms to filter through all of this content and tune it to individual tastes? Because at the moment, like you could look at a genre and say, I like fantasy, but if you're a fantasy reader, your chance of any random fantasy book being good is still pretty low. Um, and then you could look at the, you know, the, the star ratings, which are all manipulated by people trying to game them. Um, or you could look at editor's picks, but that's a really, really narrow selection. And it tends to be gamed as well by like the large publishing houses, like you're fighting all of that. Um, or you could maybe rely on friends to recommend books. That's probably the closest mm -hmm. we have to getting a reliable, good recommendation. So you end up with these social networks of people I know, either online or digitally uh, or in real life, handing books to each other. But that is very, it, that still can't keep up with the flood of titles that's coming out. So at present, we have a system where if you're a self-published author, you put a book out into the world and you're meant to spend all this amount of money to advertise it, to pay for advertising with the hope that you'll make, you know, a dollar ten back for every dollar that you spend in advertising. And we keep spending more and more money until we reach the point where it's break even. It, and out of interest, if you look at Amazon, they make more money selling ads to authors than they make than the authors make from selling books. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's basically not it's not a career industry anymore. It's a consumer hobby to write a novel on, on average. And I think I would be pretty much in that situation too, like the majority of people. Maybe I'll take off later. But anyway, my big idea was why can't we take, as individuals, take LLMs and train them to our particular tastes 
and then say, okay, AI, go and filter through the million titles on, on Amazon, like the t sample chapters, and pick out the 0.1% that I would actually like. So I'm, I'm, and it would completely flip the internet's business model on its head because um, Google and uh, Amazon and they're all basically advertising companies. Like the whole internet oh, runs yeah. on advertising Absolutely. revenue. So what if nobody needed to advertise anything anymore? What if we all had AIs that were scraping the internet for what we wanted and nobody actually had to make an effort to push their things yeah, just out anymore? They just had to publish a good them. product. Yeah. Uh, if you could mm. get an, and then the internet if you does could the get rest. a model that you could feed like the entire novel into and then it could drop like the trope mm. list out. And then mm -hmm. you could say, here's <laughs> my trope list, list yes. for yeah. hard sci-fi or here's my trope list for space operas. And it gives you the and, novels and that writing match. style as yeah, well, writing I style. think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we had talked about this before because we'd, we'd emailed back and forth about it a little bit. And Matt was going to chat with you about Storygraph, um, which is a company that's doing something kind of like that, kind of a proto version of that. Yeah, it's only a couple of years old now. Yeah, and it's an independent developer, and it's a actually like a female person of color, so even better. And um, she's creating this thing where you can feed in a bunch of your books, and it parses out your preferences. So if you're like, okay, these are all your five star books, here's a like a very detailed graph of what that means to you. Like you and, like, and when you review the book, mm -hmm. you're reviewing the mood of the book. Like, what did it feel like? Was it fast-paced, slow-paced? Was it adventurous? Was it emotional? Whatever. So then you get these really nuanced reviews that have all these tags, these mood tags. Um, and so then you can search through their database based on what you're looking for at the moment. I'm looking for a, a short, fast-paced, you know, adventure story with, you know, superpowers or something. Yeah. Yeah, I think a natural outgrowth of that method would be something like an AI where you could be like, here's how I'm feeling. I'm just going to check a couple of boxes and then I'm going to send it out into the universe and it will bring back my recommendations. Yeah. Yeah, so something like Storygraph is building this curated data set with all these human added tags on the books and there's no like financial incentive involved. So there's a little bit more confidence that the reviews are genuine. Yeah. Everybody just wants something that's not attached to Amazon. <laughs> Please. Yeah, I think data is just the limitation for that. I definitely think that's something that could happen. It's just getting people to really granularly describe how they like a book. And I think that's probably the most challenging thing for people because it's such a mood thing for so many people where it's like, well, I like that. I don't know why I liked it. And I definitely feel like before we started the podcast, that's how I felt. And then when I had to sit down and talk for an hour and a half about why I liked the thing, it was like, oh, okay, I, I can unpack that a little bit better now. Um, I know the book that we're reading for our book club this month, I just finished it and it was okay. But it got me thinking about like the voice that I expect for certain types of books. Like when I read a hard sci-fi novel, there's a voice that I expect. And it's kind of a mansplainy, like, I'm just going to tell you all this really detailed stuff about my science. And then here's a couple characters, whatever. And I think that's what I enjoyed about your books was I felt like, okay, here's an achievable hard sci-fi novel that has a voice that I enjoy. 
And then I was reading this fantasy novel and it ended up having more of a hard sci-fi voice and I just didn't like it. I was like, that's not what I'm here for. I expected to have a more, um, I don't know how to describe the voice for sci-fi or for fantasy, but more of like a, a loose um, comedic voice is what it needed. But instead it had more of a like, I'm going to explain absolutely every detail of everything that's happening in this magic system to for demonstrate you. how clever I am every single time it happens and I thought I was gonna die and because <laughs> I feel like that's but that's what we would come to is like okay I need to be able to unpack all the data about what I like and what I don't like but I think that that's something that I mean I feel like that's something we're ready to do because people there's such a pro- proliferation of content it's like podcasts like we mentioned at the very beginning where like three years ago, four years ago, you know, there were just weren't podcasts. There weren't as many. The, the market wasn't as flooded with podcasts. So people could discover you and start to listen to you. And there wasn't enough competition for it to really matter. And I feel like now that um, celebrities have gotten into podcasting, which is a whole other thing that I have a lot to say about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's an understatement. (laughs) Um, now that celebrities have started podcasting and we get some more podcasts, it's hard to be found. And so, yeah, I think that's the next question to be answered, which is how do you find content that relates to you in the ocean of content that exists? So we didn't solve your problem. That's why I really appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I really appreciate your podcast because it's a, I mean, it's a, a taste-making uh, mechanism, basically, that you're doing the hard work of filtering all sorts of things and then presenting the best to your audience in, in a coherent um, style. So, and that's one thing I worry about AI, that it might fall into the trap of just giving you what you wanted mm. yesterday, forever, that you'll miss the opportunity to discover things which you never would have suspected. Yes. I mean, I, I love reading really, really widely. And I particularly love reading drafts of like authors that haven't had a lot of practice before. Um, once it, I'm a bit like a snake with a mouse. Like once a book has been published, it's like it's dead. <laughs> I'm, I'm not interested in it anymore. Like, whereas if I can actually like engage in the story and think about how it could be improved in all sorts of different ways, it, it, it feels more alive, more dynamic. Um, I mean, the history of story, like until a few hundred years ago, stories were all about retelling and modification. Like it was a, it was a really dynamic thing. And we get that a little bit now with like fan mm. fiction, but I don't know, just the, the amount of like proper versions, like, you know, finished manuscripts that are kind of set in stone. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's an upside for like the end of industrialization. That you know, all of those mountains of of novels and textbooks and and manuscripts are, are going to be washed away, and we'll have room to breathe yeah. again, to 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 create again. Yeah. And and maybe people would save only the stories that were actually like meaningful to them. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I, I like the burning house analogy. Like if you had to run into the house and save one thing from like our modern culture, what would it be? Oh my God. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. What would we save from our culture? I don't know. Maybe the, the speed at which well, we can communicate with each other. I think 
would be something that I think would be beneficial to mm. keep, just the fact that we can stay globalized. I, I wouldn't like to see us become isolated again. But as for the rest of it, I think, I think we're, we'd probably be in agreement that that's fine. That can go. Yeah. Maybe modern medicine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we just take that one as a given and then we get a freebie after that. I don't know. Because like, uh, it'd be hard to give up, you know, no death and childbirth and, and things like that. <laughs> but of course, you know, if we go by um, the rules of the novel of uh, Vitria's womb, all we have to do in, in enough generations, there'd be no pain in childbirth because if you did have pain in childbirth, you just call yourself and the next guy gets to, to try again. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I, I learned something really interesting. The, um, you know how there was a, a rickets epidemic through like the last few hundred years in Europe? Like children would have like bendy legs from vitamin D deficiency because they, they didn't get enough sunlight. Um, so apparently that also uh, altered the way that women's pelvises formed because like that's bones. And that was one of the main drivers for so many people dying in childbirth. Their, their hips hadn't formed properly due to, um, you know, such a terrible lifestyle that they were living. So it's not necessarily an essentially human thing. Like it, it was yeah. made worse. That's in interesting. Recent history. Yeah. So our, our horrors of like every fifth person, you know, dying the first time yeah. they have a baby. It's, it's not actually our default natural condition. It was a, a, a consequence of us living in really horrific times. That makes sense. Times. Yeah. As someone who's had mm. multiple pregnancies, <laughs> I can confirm. Uh, our, actually, it's interesting. My, my first two children I had naturally, um, and they were fine. And then we actually went on a surrogacy journey um, for another family because I felt like I am really, really capable of having children and why would I not share this? If I'm done, I can do one more for somebody else. And um, so we had a we had twins for another family, and I actually had every possible complication in that pregnancy. Um, whereas in the first two, I was fine the whole time. But um, I actually had like a postpartum hemorrhage, which at the time I didn't know was like a big. I was just like, what is happening? Why is everyone suddenly in the room? Because <laughs> um, I sent Matt out. I was like, I think. <laughs> I think there's something wrong. So Matt came, sent, went out and got a nurse and they came in and she's like, get everybody and brought everybody in. And then I actually had postpartum eclampsia. So I had like blood pressure of like 150 over 200 and I had to be on this. Anyway, it was a whole big deal. But I was like, that's interesting because my first two were fine. I had no problems. I had both of them naturally. And then the third one was like, I'm so thankful that I am in a hospital right now because I would have died. And so that's why I, I, I always joke about being thankful for modern medicine. I mean, I wasn't older. There was really no reason for that. It was just, you know, the randomness of, of life. But um, that's why I'm always a proponent for, yes, it's okay to pursue care for child. No, don't have them at home. That's fine. Go in. You never know what might happen. Or at least have someone there who can call and bring someone in immediately. Um, I don't know why I went off on that tangent. I just felt like I always have to plug that. Like, no, no, if you feel it anyway, like you're going to just go. No, don't just go. Um, because I do think certainly we wouldn't have survived as a species if we couldn't have children. So the vast majority of women will be fine. Mm. But, you know, you don't want to be the one that's not. Mm. As the only one capable of, um, of having children you, in this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> were, were, were there a few parts of our vitreous womb where you were surprised that you weren't 
more horrified because there's like some aspects of the story that nobody's brought up as like, oh, we had, why did you do that? Um, like, for example, um, like book two has quite a lot of infanticide in it. Um, and nobody seems that horrified by it. And I'm, <laughs> I find that odd. You're like, hey. um, and, and in book three, that there's like a whole, there's a whole race of women who are bred to be sterile. I don't like to use the word sex slaves. Like that's just part of their duties. The, the mule mm-hmm. wives mm-hmm. that like their, their whole point is that they're sterile and that they just run around after the crepto men yeah. to keep them working. Um, so few people have brought that up as being problematic and I'm, I'm kind of surprised um, I think it. it's because once you take things and put it in a fantastical setting, uh, I'm, I'm game. I'm like, okay, well, that's the way that world works. Um, yeah, I think you did a really good job scaling, like getting the reader into the context of that world. We started out in something that was fairly familiar, you know, this small castle and you know, like a kind of like a royal family situation. And then you find out, oh, it's actually part of this, just slightly larger area. Mm. And, and there's the lake and whatever. And then by the time you get the point of view character actually like living in a different place, you've, you started out like, oh, I'm comfortable in this setting as the reader because this is familiar and you've been carried along for the whole ride with the main character and, and they've acclimated to whatever else is happening and the reader acclimates yeah. with them. Yeah. yeah. Because the point of view character is not outraged probably. Yeah. Nobody else is concerned or disgusted or whatever about it. Yeah. And it did took me a little while to mm. figure out that Sprogs were babies. Um, and I think by the time I did, I was like, oh, okay. All right. Um, yeah, I don't, that's an interesting question. That's very Aussie slang. <laughs> okay. I was like, I don't know what those. That's very Aussie slang. Okay. I, I didn't, because you didn't at any point, point clear, clarify it. And I was like, well, he's taking his rote that we know that sprogs are babies. So that's fine. Like, that's okay. Once I figured it out, it was fine. Um, but it. I think maybe that that's not necessarily why, but I think because the main character's not, and because you're in this setting where uh, I'm interested in solving this mystery, because Meobeth meets um, some of the Australs, and then they all call themselves, and mm-hmm. she's like, "Well, why'd they do that?" And he's like, "Well, because you talked to them, because you know, then they had to do that." And so mm-hmm. by the time you get to the point where we're actually seeing them do it, you're like, "Oh, that's why." Oh, okay, now I've figured out that problem. Yeah, and I don't know why I didn't feel like the mule wives were problematic. <laughs> Maybe because we watched too much 90s TV. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I think it... I, I wonder if it comes down to characterization, because the only one we really get to know is Imani. Like, yeah. Uh, Iadessa's lady servant, like a best friend. And she, like, stands up for herself. Like, she's not... A slave, right? It doesn't feel like anybody's being exploited. Just a slave, and they're all there because they want to be. Because if they wanted Mm. to leave, they just exactly they just call themselves. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not framed as negative. Yeah, it it probably comes down to that. Like it doesn't feel like anybody's trapped in this situation, and they have to do these unpalatable things just to continue living. Because if they were if they were uncomfortable in their situation, well, then they just chew their bead and be done, done. with it. 
and so mm. so you see these people doing these things and uh maybe it feels a little weird but you know that they're doing it willingly yeah yeah mm. i was thinking some about your email that you sent earlier saying that um the you had been rejected for being too weird from that thing that I had to look up because I'd never heard of it. And I was like, too weird. And I was really trying to think about it. And I was like, maybe it's all the castration. If I had anything that <laughs> didn't take me out, but was just like, oh, okay. Uh, all right. Another one. Okay. <laughs> I, I, could, just... I could totally see if someone did a shallow <laughs> summary of the novellas and was like, here, this is the book we're c considering. They're like, hold on. It has like suicide and castration and sex slaves and <laughs> infanticide and all these things. Yeah, we can't, we can't have this book. <laughs> You're taking it out of context. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess bare bones. You forgot the murder suicide by beehive. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. That one too. Yeah. Yeah. After the infanticide. Yeah. 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 Which I, I hope we go back to that character, the little girl that she leaves behind. Oh, she, geez, sister. Yeah. Oh, uh, Melissa. Yeah. yeah. No, um, there are, there are actually plans. I'm saying that in third person. I have plans. <laughs> Haldane's to planning to write these three things. novella installments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there, there will be three more. Um, it's probably the next project that I'll start probably autumn, well, your spring mm -hmm. next year. So give, give me another year and a bit to do that. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll stick to the format. And um, the the final three will go through South America, through Palavana, mm. um, into North America, um, then into the slave empires. So you actually get to see the, the heart of the beast. Um, and then the final book jumps about 30 million years into the future and gets really weird. Oh, good. We like really weird. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, actually, Matt read some of those Greg, because we had discussed reading some more uh, sort of biology-based um, books. And so he read uh, the Greg Egan book. And so uh, yeah, he was, Taranesia. And then I read Blood Music. So he was summarizing mm. to, a, um, to it to me when we were on vacation. And I was like, it's okay. You can save it and talk to Haldane about it because um, I just I mean it's good I, I really enjoy them but he is more of the like I love the science and I'm more of the I love the character which I think is why we both enjoyed this book so much because I got character and he got science and it was just like a nice marriage of the two yeah 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 I I, I thank you for the recommendation of Terranesio mm -hmm. it's I mean Greg Egan isn't a nobody and again like i would have struggled to cross paths with that just relying on algorithms right? and, and you know, keyword searches. I don't so remember there, how a, I first point in case, stumbled on Greg Egan. Uh, diaspora. Well, he's such an interesting outlier because he is so aggressively not on the internet. Like, yes. if you Google Greg Egan, the only picture that shows up is the one that's like, these guys are not me. Like, this guy's not me, this guy's not me, and this guy's not <laughs> and me. And he says, this is the only picture I have ever published on the internet. <laughs> and then he just disappears back into the, like, <laughs> into the sides. And mm. uh, the fact that he has been as successful as he has been while just being aggressively reclusive. And he's also Australian, isn't yeah. he? Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not that that's related. Yeah. So it, it gives me hope. <laughs> 
I, I think, I, I mean, I look at a writing career, there's this thing that when you're doing like house repairs, it can be cheap, it can be fast, yes. or it can be good. Mm. And you have to pick two out of the three. It can't be all three. And I'm, I'm definitely going for the, the cheap option. So I'll get there eventually if I stick to it. Um, but it could take a while. And I suspect that the appetite for my kind of writing could take a while. Like history, you've got to pick your right yeah. time in history for writing a particular kind mm -hmm. of story. Um, I, I always use Tolkien as an example. So when he first wrote Lord of the Rings in what was the 50s, a few academics read it and go, oh, this is kind of a, a weird adult. Like, who is this for? Is it an <laughs> right? adult yeah. fairy tale? Like, what are we going to do with that? And it wasn't until the hippies and the anti-war and the anti-nuclear people in the 70s picked it up and kind of made it like a theme of everything that they were arguing for, that like Sauron was the military industrial complex or whatever, um, that it actually got traction and that um, Dungeons and Dragons became popular. That has been um, and really weird And the movies in that see. kind of realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As, <laughs> oh, it's yeah. come yeah, back like, again. Yeah, I, when I was in high school in the you know late '90s, early 2000s, D and D was like you you get picked on for wanting to play D and D, and like I had to, I, I bought the like rule book off another guy in band, and <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me all his dice and stuff because I don't like he was now like too popular to be able to play D and D anymore. And so he was just foisting off all his D and D stuff. And now it's like, Oh yeah. It, if you play D and D, you're cool. Yeah. Well, maybe, I don't know okay. if it's gone that far mm, yet, but I don't know if you're cool, but you're interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, my, my guess is that this, the audience appetite for a, non-Star Trek sci-fi will increase in the future. I'm guessing probably when Elon Musk's kind of hype empire collapses. <laughs> like he's really good at like PR and marketing, but he's not actually delivering, you know, this kind of we'll be in we'll be living on Mars by like next March. <laughs> Eventually that I, I I compare him to um Elizabeth Holmes with Theranos. You, you know that story, don't mm -hmm. you? That she was this um like tech genius billionaire who invented this new technology for like analyzing blood samples that only needed like a pinprick to do all of these tests that they draw like liters to do normally. And the tech was vaporware, like it never worked. Mm. And she was basically, she's been put in jail now for like defrauding <laughs> all of these people who put like millions and millions of dollars into it. So her problem was that she only had one lie so that eventually it was going to get exposed. Elon, and I'm, I'm not, in public accusing Elon yeah. of lying because, you know, that's probably not safe in this day and age. Um, but he constantly moves from one thing to another so that people, uh, I mean, it's a little bit like Trump with his scandals. Mm -hmm. Like he was constantly doing some new outrageous yeah. thing every week that nobody had time to keep track of what happened with the last scandal. So it just kind of stopped being a priority. And um, yeah, I kind of feel like Elon is doing a similar operation with just so many balls in the air that you don't know where to look and you're not noticing that none of them are actually, you know, they're all attached to strings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just this like generational veneration of wealth. We need to move through the wealth without effort. Mm -hmm. um, I see that with my niece. And so it comes up, it, you know, wealth without effort, but also entertainment without effort. I need to just be sit here. I need to mm -hmm. sit here and have you 
feed me entertainment. And I think we need to move past that to, I, I want to be actively engaged in my own entertainment. I want it to make me think. I want it to make me, I want to learn things. I want to have it change something fundamentally about how I view the world so that I can move through the world differently because I've consumed this entertaining thing. Yeah, when you were talking about storytelling earlier, I was thinking like now media is all very one directional. Like there's the reader consuming books or the viewer consuming movies and TV shows. And most people don't like talk to anybody about it, about what they like. They might mention, oh, I like this thing. But then there's not a whole lot of like, long conversations about it. Whereas historically storytelling was all participatory. There was always a back and forth. And yeah. like you said, there was always revisions. There was always, you know, here's my spin on it. Mm. And I think one of the reasons like D and D is getting popular is because it's, it's collaborative storytelling with, with, with statistics. statistics. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, yeah, I think yep. there's a little bit of momentum <laughs> going into, hey, let's actually talk about what we're interested in. It's okay to like weird stuff, but it's just it's just starting out. Yeah. Kind of getting back into the back and forth nature of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Could you ever see something like Dungeons and Dragons being the foundation for a future religion? Yes. I mean, isn't that what Dianetics is? <laughs> L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology? Uh, well, I mean, that's, that, yeah, that was, that's the sci-fi version of it. Yeah. 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 I think the fantasy version of it would be much more fun. Yeah, it would be much more fun. Yeah. There would be loincloths and things. <laughs> uh, Space Wizard would make a lot more sense in a fantasy setting than yeah. a sci-fi setting. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I do have plans to one day write uh, a book about um it's the idea of uh an a, a collapse culture cult that doesn't pretend it's not a cult <laughs> so when you join this thing it's like okay for people to be able to form functional groups because we've all been like so divided apart by like modern industrial society um you need to go through brainwashing in order to be a nice enough person to actually function in a group of people. Oh, like using the cult so mechanisms like on purpose? Yeah. Explicitly? It's like, okay, we're going to have brain. This is your, yeah, this is your daily brainwashing <laughs> because we're using these psychological techniques to, to make you a better person. Ooh. And it's not hidden. It's not fake. Um, but it's inspired by slime molds. <laughs> so slime molds are usually unicellular. They're, they're these amoebas that float around on their own, doing their own thing. But when conditions are stressful enough, they all band together to like make a collective that's like stronger than the individuals. So the idea is the cult basically it incarnates for a limited amount of time for a specific purpose. So for example, if conditions are so difficult that it's impossible to raise a child on your own anymore economically, but if you lived in a dorm with like 50 people who are all raising children together, you'd have an economy of scale. So basically you would select the right best people to come together to form that collective go through a kind of reproductive phase in your life, get the babies to like two years old, you get past the difficult, difficult phase, and then you separate. Like there's a, there's a fixed end point to this cult and it goes through multiple generations of like coming together and falling apart again. 
I think that'd be real. We'd read that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Give me a few minutes. I've got to finish Vitreous Worm first. Um, that's really interesting. I've seen some, I don't know if you guys have them there, but there's a, a movement for communities here where um, in the center is all shared land space. And then the outside edge is all habitation. And so you all share responsibility for yeah. like farming the central area. And you buy in with the idea that you're going to contribute to the community. And I think that it's interesting in this kind of world that we've created where it's almost anti-community, where all of our communities are online, which are not actually as biologically satisfying to us as in-person interaction is. And yet we feel like it it should be. So we keep banging our head against that wall that's not working. And then we're we're creating we, we we're having to actively create these spaces for interaction. So I think that would be an interesting mm, a great effort. Yeah. Yeah. That would be both a realistic and inspiring future. <laughs> would be the the intentional cult method of okay, you you all agree to be really cool to each other for a little while so we can all get along and like for collective empowerment mm. and then we split that would be really interesting well it, it's very much modeled on how living systems work that you you particularly that the rules with which the cult operates is constantly being experimented with and updated so every time the cult comes together and it, it uses a, a kind of random selection of ideas that have worked pretty well previously and then the results of how well that incarnation functioned gets transmitted forwards, like genetics being selected. So certain combinations of like, um, you know, rules and customs and organizational logistics will work better than others for particular purposes. So you can actually go through your life passing from one kind of cult to another at different life stages. And over time, each of those kind of sub organizations gets optimized and See, the problem with real religions is that they grow so big and so unwieldy that things get locked into place that are dysfunctional just because that's the way we've always done it. Whereas if you're constantly breaking things down and starting again, it gives you an opportunity to kind of try out lots of different things and keep what works. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's what the, one of the things we enjoyed about your book, The Vitreous Womb, was that it felt very micro and macro at the same time where we were talking about these micro, micro, like the cells, which are actually called cells, but then they are actually part of a community, which is actually kind of an organism. So you could see it as these individual cells are trying out new things and then enriching the organism as a whole. So it was kind of like micro and mm. macrobiology all at the same time. So I think it, I think applying that to another novel would definitely be really interesting to see. Um, I think we can get very focused mm. on, I mean, we love character and I think, but we think we can get so focused on character that you lose the sense the of narrative. community that the character operates in. And I didn't feel like I had that with your yeah. novel. I still yeah. felt like I knew where their place was. Yeah. It, it's funny for this um, deliberate cult or explicit cult book, the way I think I'm going to get around the problem of characterization over time is that inside each organization, when it comes together, you adopt a name and a persona and a role when you come in. So 
there will be a consistent character name and set of character names through all of the incarnations of the different cults, but the actual biological people behind them will be different every time. I like that. So as a reader, you can... You know, it's like I'm playing the god Hermes yeah. today. Right, like and live action role playing. Someone else will be taking the role. Yeah, but they will have, they will embody similar characteristics. So when you're in that organization and you're going to talk to Hermes, you have a rough idea about what to expect from that person, what their, what their proclivities and their role happens to be. Um, even if their nose is a slightly different <laughs> shape, it's still the same god. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, I guess it's getting into late afternoon for you. It's like 11 o'clock at night here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> time zones make things fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but we really enjoyed chatting with you, Haldane. Thank you for t- setting aside time for us. Oh, it was a delight. And I'm, I'm always happy to see someone enjoy the book because it's a, it's a little bit out there, but I know that there's the right audience they're out there. I've just got to find yeah, a way. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's how we feel about our podcast too. It's like we're just going to keep doing this, and then people will find us. And maybe we don't get, maybe we don't get to be wandry podcasts or something. But like, we, we have a good time. I'd rather have a good time than um, make money. I'd rather like to make money too. But good times also good. Yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> this is just fulfilling yeah, relationship fulfilling. wise. Yeah, and there's a lot of exposure to. Um, I guess media that I wouldn't normally consume of yeah. my own following my own interests. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast is doing things simply for the joy of doing them. And I think that's something that gets devalued so much in culture, our culture that um, I think it's important for people to go out there and do it. And of course we'd love to do it for reasons other than self-fulfillment, but also self-fulfillment is a good goal in and of itself. So I don't know how that related to your book, but that was just a PSA from Strange and Beautiful Book Club about doing the things that you like to do. <laughs> um, well, I know you haven't been no, writing. I, I definitely wrote it as an indulgent. It was a very self-indulgent but very sincere activity writing that book. So I, I hope that comes across in, in, the, in the writing because I think that's a very difficult thing to fake, that, that sincerity. Uh, yeah, I think maybe the better the books and movies that we enjoy the most are the ones that people do for the love of creating that story. And I definitely could see that in your writing is I'm not creating a product for sale, uh, but I'm I kind of am, but I'm also creating a product that I love too. So thank you very much for writing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, we'll let you go. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. And and whenever you do write anything else, do let us know. We'll be happy to read it and uh, try for another spoiler fee review. I'm, I'm halfway through a non Yeah, I'm I'm halfway through a nonfiction book at the moment, more related to the experimental farming. But straight after that, I'll get back onto the end of our victory. Okay, so that sounds really good. I mean, we'll be around hopefully. So don't just hit us up. <laughs> All right, thank you, Will all do. day.